0: Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by All the Pieces Matter. The Wire is considered by many, including myself, to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, television shows of all time. And now New York Times best-selling author Jonathan Abrams has the behind-the-scenes story of the show as told by those who lived it. I got to say, this is a great book about an incredible television show. Abrams is, is our guy. We're going to have him on the show soon. The book comes out February 13th. The Wire had this incredible collection of veteran actors and writers— And also, people who are so new to the industry, you get this incredible chemistry, this incredible viewpoints on making a show, what the show wound up meaning to people. Uh, There's so much in the book that you never knew about this iconic and beloved show. All the Pieces Matter is available February 13th, wherever books are sold. And stay tuned for when John joins me and Andy on The Watch. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by the Showtime hit series, Homeland. The show with its finger on The Pulse returns for a new season starring Claire Danes and Mandy Patankin. The crisis in Washington continues with the attempted assassination of the president. And now as the ultimate outsider, Carrie Matheson attempts to save a government heading off the rails while a resistance movement threatens violent revolution. Homeland returns with new episodes Sunday at 9 p.m. Download the Showtime app now and start your free trial.
1: I need sports staff to have to
2: clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and today's episode of The Watch is Andy Free. Sorry, uh, Greenwald had to miss today, but I was joined by a couple of very special guests. I first talked to Sean Fennessy, EIC of The Ringer and host of The Big Picture, and David Shoemaker, who hosts uh, The Press Box and The Masked Man Show. We chatted a little bit about all this Star Wars news happening this week. We heard that D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, Game of Thrones showrunners, were going to be joining the Star Wars franchise to make a trilogy of films unconnected to the Skywalker saga. That is the second group of movies now that have been assigned. Ryan Johnson's has been working on his own original trilogy. We still have the Star Wars anthology movies with Solo coming on Memorial Day. And we still have to figure out what's up with Kylo and Rey. So we have tons of Star Wars stuff happening. How much is too much Star Wars? That's the question we wanted to answer. Uh, At the second half of the podcast today, I was joined by a really cool filmmaker named David Bruckner. We talked about his movie The Ritual, which is coming out on Friday on Netflix. If you are a horror fan, I highly recommend checking out this movie, even if you're just into like psychological thrillers or... Kind of strange, offbeat dramas. This movie stars Rafe Spall, which is one of my favorite actors. Uh, he was in a really great uh, British crime show called The Shadow Line a few years ago, and, and since then has shown up in Prometheus, The Big Short, and just a bunch of stuff. You can look him up; you'll you'll recognize him immediately. This is about a group of friends who go on a hiking trip in Sweden to in memory of a friend of theirs who has passed away, and they kind of go on this sort of like big chill type uh, retreat to to remember this guy and basically everything that could go wrong does go wrong. I don't want to give away too much about what happens on this hiking trip because that's sort of the fun of of seeing a horror movie, is not knowing too much about it. But David Bruckner does an incredible job. as atmosphere with shooting the landscape gets really great performances, really understands tension. We talked about The Ritual. We talked about some of his previous work on Southbound and VHS and The Signal. His time working within the Friday the Thirteenth franchise that never really came to fruition, and just what it's like to be a hard director in 2018. So it was a really cool interview, Sean and David on Star Wars, David Bruckner on the Ritual. Andy will be back on Monday. Thank you for listening. All right, I am joined now by uh, Sean Fennessy, my old friend and my old adversary. Hello, uh, editor in chief of oh. The Ringer and first time watch guest. Shockingly amazing. I'm really sorry, David Shoemaker, aka the Masked Man, the art director of The Ringer, the host of. The Masked Man Show, the co-host of the,
2: the Press Box podcast. Your, your favorite podcaster's favorite podcaster, <laughs> David
1: Shoemaker. That's great. I thought I was here to have an intervention about the Watch logo. So <laughs> this is...
0: um, that's, yeah, it's without Andy here, that would be a good time to do it. Uh, actually, I am brought you two gentlemen here to talk about a galaxy far, far away. Um, I want to talk about Star Wars. I want to talk about Star Wars saturation. Okay, this isn't concern trolling. This is just like an open and honest exchange of views. And that's what this is about. So this week we had the announcement that David Benioff and D B Weiss would be working on an additional trilogy of Star Wars movies outside of the additional trilogy of, trilogy of Star Wars movies that Ryan Johnson is right. scheduled to contracted to work on. And outside of the Scar- Skywalker saga that is Maybe wrapping up with this JJ Abrams film coming out next year, or maybe we'll continue on beyond that with the Ray and Kylo, the Skywalker saga, whatever. Then we also have the anthology movies. We got solo coming out mm-hmm. at Memorial Day. One would assume that they have other ones in the Hopper. And uh, Bob Iger, this was kind of quiet as kept, did a, a talk this week about, you know, a, a Disney, a Disney earnings call and talked about Disney's coming streaming service that that base uh, Bam Advanced Tech is making for them. And said that they have multiple Star Wars television shows in development with, quote, uh, a level of talent on the television front that will be rather significant as well. That would be sort of the, the marquee titles in this Disney streaming service, which will also include all the content from Fox that they just bought, the FX stuff, the Disney stuff, the cartoons, everything. So, we're not, now we're looking at six other Star Wars movies outside of the main saga— And television shows, one would assume some of them would be, you know, like Prestige TV. We used to have to wait long, like decades, for Star Wars content to come along, and now the block is flooding. And I want to ask you guys, as two two people who are Star Wars fans, like, how do you feel about that?
2: I feel mostly good, though I have a a low hum of caution. Um, Not because I think that the product is going to be diluted, but because I think that, the end game of this is less Star Wars content and not more because I think we've already seen a very modest dip in the returns on the last three films. And so Force Awakens was an absolute masterfully unveiled marketing experience on the Lucasfilm front. It's the most successful movie ever made. Rogue One was mired in some controversy mm-hmm. and some reshoots and was less successful, though it was a more obscure kind of mid-story tale. So the, I think the expectations there were a little bit lower. And then The Force Awakens has been a certainly a hit and certainly a world-conquering the Last movie. Jedi, the one that just came out. Yeah, excuse yeah, me, yeah, The yeah. Last Jedi. Um, has been a world-conquering hit, but has made less money. Yes. And has also been mired in a controversy all its own or, around fanboys, around their reception. And that trend may continue with Solo. And then you have... A declining asset on your hands when you have four consecutive sinking box office returns, and then you have greenlit six more movies plus the other anthologies you noted plus the, these TV series, and then what do you have when things are garnering less and less attention and less and less interest?
1: Yeah, well, I agree I, with almost everything you said. I, I think that I don't, this is sort of like a like a force versus dark side vibe going on inside <laughs> me because it, it's difficult to not. When you talk about the subject for more than 10 seconds, it's difficult to not let the pessimism creep in, right? I mean, that's the narrative that's easy—I mean, that, that's easiest to tell. I think that there's this sort of—what we're seeing is the competing—like, the, the competing forces of the—you need to give this—you need to give this feeling of confidence to the audience, right? That this—that's This, this the, that's why everything's being unveiled as a trilogy before they even go into production, sure. right? to invest in film number one, you need the, the, the average viewer wants the confidence that there will be two more or maybe many more, the TV show, uh, TV shows. But the, but the flip side of that is, yeah, diminishing returns, that it's just not special anymore. You're not, you didn't just wait 10 years to see Star Wars, you know? You know that there's going to be one coming out. You know that you can wait, I mean... The turnaround time when the Disney app or the whatever be, uh, comes into existence, might, it might be three months from from opening day to you can watch it on your TV. You know, I mean, so there's less of a drive to storm out to the theater and see it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting spot they find themselves in. I mean, I, I don't, I I, I I'm, I'm hesitant to kind of notch the last three movies off as like a downward trend because there's still I mean the last jedi is still what like the like sixth highest grossing movie of all time or something like that I, I mean think it's, it's fourth yeah yeah I mean it's, it's it's crazy but yeah I mean the expectations for this is so for these movies are just so so high so
0: for the last couple of movies for for force awakens rogue one and last jedi we've I think one of the overarching macro narratives about that to some extent has been people's emotional relationship to the original trilogy because it's not only uh subverting our expectations about Who those people are, who Leia was, who Luke was, who you know, uh, what the dark side was, what the light was, but it's also playing a lot of the same melodies from those movies in terms of an orphan with a gift, this battle for that powerful child's uh, like powers, and you know, this sort of collection of. Uh, rogues and bandits that are around these people that are kind of on the on the margins that come into this to the central storyline to save the universe over Mm -hmm. and over again
2: imperial colonial colonialism versus a ragtag bunch of rebels that's the story of all of these movies
0: when they hired benioff and weiss the first thing that jumped (laughs) into my head obviously is just like star westeros was Mm -hmm. that they were gonna they were being brought on to do the thing that they did with Game of Thrones, which is see this world on these multiple levels. And the thing that Game of Thrones does is that for all the swords and shields it has, it's basically people in rooms talking, making moves, making political moves. And the thing that's fascinating to me, and at once incredibly intriguing and probably a little bit bit scary, is this idea of Star Wars getting away from the wars or Star Wars getting away from the stars or whatever you want to say, however you want to put it but Star Wars deviating from the tricks that we know work within it. Because the last time there was a massive deviation from that kind of stuff was the prequels. And people didn't, at least initially, particularly care for the prequels. They didn't want to see a movie about taxation and Senate moves and the rise of something. We'll see whether or not this is like, I think that they thought they had a lot more on their hands with the history of Star Wars. The pre uh, the pre-trilogy history, and I don't know if they're really getting that. Yeah. I don't know if they really actually have the the goldmine on their hands that they thought they did because Rogue One and Solo have both had problems not only behind the camera, but I think people are like, Han Solo is dead. Yeah, much much a movie about a dead guy. Rogue One. I know what happens to those people at the end of Rogue One.
1: Well, I mean, you also have to. I mean, there's there's a risk involved that we've seen. Rogue One was a great example. We, we, I mean, theoretically, that could have been a smaller. They could have allowed that to be a smaller movie, yeah, right? That was, an,
0: I think, but, initially the plan.
1: Yeah, but they're worried about, as Sean rightly pointed out, they're worried about the you know the meta narrative about the the trajectory, and so they start they they go all in with reshoots and with plugging it as you know a necessary movie, even if it's out of the trilogy. I mean, you Solo, I think, is going to be really interesting because, like. In order for, if we if we sat around and came up with the story for a Han Solo, you know, backstory movie, I mean, you have to, in order for it to be, in order for it to possibly be really great, you have to risk it being really bad, yeah, right? Absolutely. And the and and going the safe route is is you know that risks this sort of like steady decline. Mm-hmm. I feel like. I mean, and we're talking about Han Solo here. You know, people have been tweeting nonstop about you know it should have been a Lando movie or. You know, of course, every diehard fan would love to see a Boba Fett movie or something like that, but that's a huge risk. You know, mm-hmm. who, there's no guarantee that people are going to line up to see a Lando Calrissian movie with Donald Glover in the lead role. Like, we would be really stoked about it with a really interesting director or writer or whatever, but like, that could be. That could make like a quarter of what The Last Jedi made.
2: You raise a really interesting point. I think with Solo, they actually did make a move towards taking a risk by hiring Lord and Miller to make that movie, and they got gun-shy. Why they got gun-shy specifically and why Kathleen Kennedy moved them off that project, we don't know, but that seemed to be a moment when we could imagine... D- different complexion to each movie, a different tone to each Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. And when I l- saw the Solo trailer, I was like, "Oh, this is a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. This is not a comedy. This is not some like um, lighthearted like high school movie set in the stars." That's it's an, it, that isn't what they're going to give us. They're going to give us darkness, a sooty atmosphere, you know, war torn nations, rebel pilots, the same stuff that we've always seen. Even if it's slightly different tonally, it, it's not a radical change. The thing with Benioff and Weiss is. They made Game of Thrones a worldwide phenomenon in two ways. One was because of what you noted, which is that they have this gift for dialogue and and palace intrigue. And then the other thing is sex and violence. Mm -hmm. And sex and violence don't really exist in Star Wars. There isn't virtually no sex with the exception of one moment of incestuous kissing (laughs) and, the I guess, the native passion between Jabba the Hutt and his slave women. Sure. And then on the violence front, you know, it's it's a world of blasters and far-off death. And, like, there is genocide, but right. there's no blood spill. Right. And sure. this is—there's there. There's never been a red wedding in the Star Wars universe. Could Could Star Wars sustain that? I would like to see it, but then that's an R-rated movie, which eliminates a huge audience for these movies. These, these are kids' It would kids probably movies. work
0: better as TV. It would probably work better as—and and I I just—one thing that really surprised me about them getting this job is that, you know, they've worked for the better part of a decade— now they've had to live in Ireland and go to these far off reaches to shoot Game of Thrones, but I thought that they were going to be like great. Like we did it, we'll be making money off of Game of Thrones for the rest of our lives. Let's go make a bunch of like crime films and like you know our our own little like sort of movies for a while, and ne- never have to move our families or live away from our families for years on end again. And maybe they can do most of this stuff for Star Wars out of Disney. Like who knows? But I I keep going back to this idea of. What is it that people want from Star Wars? Cuz I think when we first heard about these movies starting to come out, one of the real excitements was is it going to be like about Wedge and the and like
2: Star- <laughs> and like and like the Academy and what's it like there? Or How what-, what percentage of people listening to the podcast right now know what who Wedge is?
0: Yo, pretty high number.
2: But I Wedge bet. is one of your spirit animals.
0: Yeah, because I think he was representative of like there's a lot of stones unturned in this universe. Mm-hmm. And I think that they have stuck pretty close to either the major events or the major story beats of this of what made Star Wars successful in the first place. Mm-hmm. The the new trilogy is essentially following along with the with the first trilogy. And the biggest biggest challenge it's not going to be like can you make a, a you know a saving private ryan star wars movie? Could you make an ocean's 11 star wars movie? It's not really that as much as can you get away from a powerful orphan and the people who are trying to control them and the family as like the family creation that to some extent, that's just like Western storytelling. Yeah. I don't think they're going to get that far. But when they are, like, this is about a politician trying to govern his planet as the empire you know, moves in on it or something, that'll be really fascinating.
1: Yeah, I totally but agree. I don't know if
0: it'll be the most popular movie of all time.
1: Yeah, I mean to, to briefly touch on what Sean said. I think that the, I mean, there is room for sex and violence, and I think you're right that it would be a TV show. I mean, that would be the the place to do it. But it's again, it's this weird branding question. We're like my one of my questions o- over the past several weeks is, will we ever see a Star Wars project that doesn't have Star Wars in the title? Mm-hmm. Right? The Marvel movies don't say Marvel. I mean, they do say Captain America: Cole and Civil War. I mean, they do they do some of that, but it doesn't have to be Avengers at the top of every marquee, right? Um, but having it, I mean, they again risk. You know, reducing viewership if they take Star Wars out, I'm sure they would say that. And also, but having it on the Disney platform, I think that reduces. If they if they did a Star Wars Netflix show, sure they could have sex and violence, you yeah. know. But having it on your own native platform makes, I think, it's riskier. I think they would be more reluctant to do it. I don't know. I think that the real the, the real risk with Benioff and Weiss, and I love Game of Thrones, and and I'm you know I think a relative supporter of theirs compared to some of the some of the voices over last season, is that they are. You know they—they're not creators. They're—they're they're really high-level managers, adapters. Yeah, and you know Ryan Johnson is, I think, a really great filmmaker. I mean, Brick is one of my favorite movies. But I, every time I, every time he, when I saw Looper, I was just like, just let him do, just let him do the intuitionist. Give him a book to mm-hmm. re- to, to work from because he's got so much talent. But it seems like he needs something to guide him, and and it's funny because Abr- J. J Abrams. You know, has this expansive mind full of ideas. What he chose to do was remake the original trilogy, more or less, you know, and uh, it'll be really weird to see what happens when these when these creators get their own separate trilogies where they have to create.
0: Yeah. Is he going to be the broom kid at the end of Last Jedi, who's the star of Ryan Johnson's trilogy? Or is he going to do something completely different that takes place in a completely other part of the galaxy?
2: Our colleague Justin Charity on Slack yesterday had, I thought, an interesting pitch for a Star Wars movie, which is just make a droid movie. Make a movie from the point of view of a droid. Mm -hmm. Now, we kind of have that movie already. It's called Wally, But it did have me thinking that I wonder if a Pixar ethic is a more interesting approach for them where they can say these movies have a spirit and they exist in essentially a universe, but its it doesn't have to feel as connected. It doesn't have to be the MCU. And I think right now they're a little worried about everything, kind of all the puzzles fitting together. Yeah. And I would rather just see, like, what is the Star Wars version of Up? You know, what, what could you just do a family story inside of these kinds of movies? I don't know. It's That's not quite the same as what you were saying, which is Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> I agree with you, but when you think about the— The first three
0: of these newer movies that have been made, when you think about Force Awakens, Rogue One, and The Last Jedi, they're really emo. A lot has happened in them. People have died. Like, maybe not violently, but major characters—granted, a lot of it is about killing the past and just getting—like, tying tying Mm -hmm. up loose ends from previous movies. But they are— You can go to a Star Wars movie and be like, something's going to happen. You don't do that when you go to Ragnarok. And you don't do that when you go to, you know, Justice League, where you're like, oh, you know, like there's. Do you think
2: you'll walk out of solo feeling that way?
0: I don't know. I don't know. But because that would I don't think that I think that they thought that if they had a real rocket ship on their hands, they could make a couple of solo movies before he got too old and before it became unrealistic that it would be butt buttressing up against A New Hope. Mm -hmm. I don't get the impression that that's going to happen, but I could be wrong. Um, I think, you know, one thing I would ask just in in closing kind of is, do you think that this means with these three movies, Johnson's three movies and TV shows, is this the end of the Ray saga? Or do you think that they take characters from the Kylo Ray Star Wars movies that they're making now and continue to make movies, but maybe not have it just these three or four people ping-ponging off of each other?
2: What do you think, David?
1: I think that I, I don't think this is the end. I mean, that I think that the well, I think a rather kind reading of the first two movies in the new trilogy so far is, like you said, it's just it's basically just a reboot, right? Mm-hmm. We're tearing down the past and we're setting these people off on their new path, and we're, and we're not near any kind of logical end. We're near the end of this particular conflict, but it definitely feels like we're setting up all of these young actors to be to do future projects. Now, whether or not that'll be you know, Ryan Johnson's epic or whatever. Uh, it'll. I think that we'll definitely see more of see more of Ray and
2: Kylo. And- I think so too. I think in part because of what I was saying earlier about the concept of legacy being such a huge part of these stories. They can't seem to shake that idea. They don't. There hasn't been a true spinoff yet. Mm-hmm. A true spinoff would be a Boba Fett movie that takes place on another planet mm-hmm. in which we don't know any other characters except for Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. But they have created. Too, they've done too much good work with Ray and Kylo Ren to abandon it. I mean, they yeah. made those two people international movie stars. They c- created, I, th- I think, like a really complex and interesting relationship between the two of them. So, the prospect of them not being in movies after 2019 just feels extremely unlikely to me. That being said, I don't think that there's a such thing as too much. I don't think, one, I, I'm almost certain that every single person at this table right now will watch anything that they put out. Yes. And yeah. that's because we are of a generation in which Star Wars is is branded on our bodies like we we feel the need to consume it even if we have some quibbles with things whether that will be true for 17 year olds i don't know
0: yeah i i will say that the one of the reasons why i think they'll they'll keep making star wars movies of this storyline that they're they've they're currently working on is that like i don't know that i've seen a character hit like the way ray has and in a way that i don't know that we even talk about very much but like when I go to Christmas dinner with my wife's extended family, and people are just like, "I Ray, Ray is my favorite character of all time. Like that's my hero." Yeah, she's
2: Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean she's yeah. a generational
0: figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I don't think that they're gonna leave that as like we wrapped that up at the third movie, and I also don't think Daisy Ridley is like get me out of here. So no,
1: I totally agree. All right, more
0: Star Wars, more problems, but not for us because we love it. Uh, thanks guys, Sean Fennessy, David Shoemaker. Check out the big picture. Check out the press box. Check out the Mass Man Show.
2: Thanks, Chris. Thanks,
1: man.
0: Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we are back, we'll be talking to David Bruckner, director of the new Netflix horror film The Ritual. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by First Leaf Club. First Leaf Club makes tasting and rating new wine an exciting event. It is the only online wine club that uses your reviews to make personalized wine selections match to your taste. The more you tell First Leaf what you like, like I might say First Leaf, I'm kind of a Cabernet capsab guy. Help, help me out here. The more you tell them, the better they can customize each new box you receive. You customize your first First Leaf box by selecting the color, wine regions, and frequency of your wine shipments. First Leaf then creates an introductory three-pack of wine just to get you started. And with First Leaf's introductory pack, you'll get all three for just $5 each. Normally, these are $20 bottles of wine, if not more. When your bottles arrive, you rate the wine to get personalized selections based on your unique taste. I'm an uncomplicated wine drinker, but I find that... By answering these questions, First Leaf actually is uh, developing my palate a little bit. I'm, not, I'm no Greenwald when it comes to this stuff, but in some ways, this is the perfect thing for me. It makes me in touch with what kind of grapes I like, what kind of flavors I like, what I'm pairing it with. First Leaf is incredible. To order your three-pack of introductory wine for only $15, go to tryfirstleaf.com. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com. Slash watch. That's three wines for only fifteen dollars on your first order at tryfirstleaf.com. Slash watch. Experience first leaf today at tryfirstleaf.com. Slash watch. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome David Bruckner to the watch. David is responsible for some of my favorite horror stuff. I think over the last like ten years or so, he had pieces of VHS and Southbound, and now he's got this great new movie that's coming out. On Friday on Netflix called The Ritual, starring a watch favorite, Rave Spall. Mm. I have to admit, that was mm-hmm. like, as soon as I saw him in the trailer, I was like, yes. Oh, that's great. Rafe yeah. Spall's starring roles are few <laughs> and far between. Mm-hmm. But man, did you ever see Shadowline? No. that, that There's like this BBC crime thriller from, I think, like five or six years ago. Mm. And he kind of plays like this, uh, it's like almost Gary Oldman in the professional level a uh, criminal nut. It's just mm-hmm. he's great in that. Yeah. Did yeah. you had you like had your eye on him for a while or did you were you just like
3: He was really our first choice yeah. in the movie. Yeah. I mean, he was top of the list. It was like, <clears throat> you know, I, I we we needed somebody that had a certain um who could play a certain alpha dominance that had kind of sabotaged himself yeah. in a sense and uh and I think that's always been Ra- Rafe has always uh, he's been able to portray that a few times I mean all the way back to Shaun of the Dead yeah he played the the 19 year old uh, disgruntled 19 year old that Simon Pegg went up against and uh, so uh, but I, I'd seen him in uh, a movie called Scouting Book for Boys uh-huh. more recently which had really you know woke me up to the possibility and uh, I was really fortunate because he was I was in LA and he was just finishing a TV show in Venice and so we we got together and kind of talked about the part and stuff like that what was like he that.
0: doing And what show was he doing
3: um I fr- I forget the name of it at the moment. I think they had just wrapped, and uh, but yeah, he he came on board instantly, and then um, I think we spoke a common language, and uh, he's he's really interested in you know characters' weaknesses, you know, like what they where they falter in a sense, and and ritual definitely dabbles
0: in that. Yeah, he brings such like a a great humanism to like these Mm -hmm. genre movies, whether it's Prometheus Mm -hmm. or whether it's. Even like a rom-com, like, you know, give Mm -hmm. it a year or something like that. Like, I just really enjoy watching him in almost any different kind of movie. So for people Mm -hmm. who don't know about the ritual, and I I don't think we should give away too much about maybe the back half of the plot, I guess, (laughs) because people will get a chance to watch it on Friday. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what it's about and also how you got involved in the project? I got
3: involved. I had read. I had read the uh, script by Joe Barton, and they'd been developing that for some time at the Imaginary Stu- Studios in London, and uh, and it had this. Uh, I mean, first of all, Joe's writing has this just incredible. There was this incredible British banter at the yeah. center of it that spoke knowingly of the situation these guys had kind of wandered into. Uh, but you had a real sense of character from it. And, uh, and the movie, it was just nuts where it went. And uh, I had a lot of questions and uh, instantly went and read Adam Neville's book by mm-hmm. which it's based and just fell in love with the, 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 the whole project. And so, um, I came on board and, uh, and we did a kind of a fourth pass on it together with, uh, me and Joe and, uh, Will Tennant at the Imaginarium. And, um, and it was, uh, it was about, uh, you know, certain masculine crisis, you yeah. know, you were, you were exploring <clears throat> not just who these guys were, but who they had been as friends at an earlier time, and. Uh, how the kind of uh, alpha hierarchy of the group had changed under a certain circumstance. And so the movie dabbled in feelings of uh, inadequacy, of uh, feeling the loss of confidence in your friends. And uh, uh, I think that kind of idea of masculinity in crisis felt like a a fresh place to stage
0: a horror film. Sure, yeah. I mean, usually you've got – a lot of these movies are focused on – young people in crisis and, or people like t- teens or whether it's, you know, young people in the, the cabin in the woods idea is very much uh, a part of that. But like, I really appreciated the fact that um, you got the feeling like the, the relationships within this group of guys had recently changed so that, so that Rafe mm-hmm. character had been sort of the guy that, who was directing traffic for the most part. Yeah. And then almost overnight it became like everything that was cool about him was the uncool thing about him. Sure, sure. Yeah. And
3: you can feel tensions on that yeah. front in the very beginning in a sense, but to 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 for for Luke to be a bit of a braggart at the top and uh sort of showing his feathers, so to speak, and then to come up so short in this, in this robbery, in the situation that him and his friends find himself in was really just an interesting territory. And also to put that right on a line where you can maybe relate to what he doesn't do in yeah. a sense and ask yourself the same question, what would I do in this, in this circumstance? And on one hand, it's like, you know, you want to be the hero. You want to, you want to stand by your friend. And on the other hand, it's like, um, is that just some machismo Right. Stuff left inside you know from from an earlier time, and should it be abandoned and uh what was interesting to play with was how it persisted was how the the failure on that front definitely still lived with him and 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 within the group
0: and then he has another chance or another he's he's faced with another opportunity to sort of save his friends mm-hmm. uh to help them guide them out of this forest. I want to talk to you about the forest as a as a setting, yeah because I was curious as somebody who obviously has like a deep affection for horror films and has worked in this this genre before was that in the back of your mind? Like, were were you always like, I want to go into the woods at some point? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I, usually
3: I'm more fascinated in kind of technological horror, like something that, yeah, Yeah. like being able to sort of satirize something that's particularly modern. Um, So the
0: signal obviously does that. The
3: signal does that. I would even argue um, I did segments in VHS and Southbound uh, in a, In a sense, they kind of do the same thing. Um, But uh, uh, no, this was this kind of came out of left field for me. In a sense, there was something about dealing with all these kind of classic tropes and and, uh, impressions of classic mythology and the way that stuff all kind of boils down into symbols Mm -hmm. in our minds. And you know, I think of movies as nightmares. You know, horror films, particular as nightmares in a sense. So what you're encountering is. Both something that exists in this world, but it's also kind of a reflection of you in yeah. a way. And uh as a sort of uh like a purgatory, like a plane to go into that in a sense, the idea of a, a spooky forest on a mountaintop um in in at the edge of civilization felt like really exciting. And 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 it also had an endurance quality yeah. to it that excited me as well. Yeah, a filmmaker. and then
0: there's also you you have that great mm-hmm. moment. I mean, the whole the fact of um uh who's the person is it Dom who do twist his ankle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that like you do have this inciting event that's like we have to take this shortcut. We have to get this guy off this mountain then we have right. to, even though everything is probably telling us we probably should not go into the dark woods. Mm-hmm. We kind of have to do that. Right. Um, it's set in Northern Sweden on the Swedish Norway border, but you shot it in Romania.
3: That's correct. Mm-hmm. I was
0: wondering, so you have this probably a forest that's in your mind. You have like, as you're reading the script and as you're thinking about it, you have this thing that's in your mind. So you get to Romania, what's the thing that immediately... Was different about it when you mm-hmm. finally are confronted with the physical space that you're going to be shooting with.
3: Well, we had to look around a bit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it didn't make financial sense to shoot in Sweden where the movie's supposed to take place. Uh, so we we looked at a few different locations around Eastern Europe, and uh, we met a production services company in Bucharest that I had sent out a bunch of mm-hmm. samples of what I had hoped the forest would look like, assuming I wouldn't get anywhere close to that.
0: When you do that, and, is that uh, mm-hmm. photos that you have, like so just,
3: just stuff I pull from the internet, okay. just I wish it did this. Yeah. I, it needs another worldly quality. I mean, I wanted a certain like moss growth on the ground. We were looking for a certain kind of spiny, very intrusive, hard to pass through kind of environment. And uh, and and this production services company, um, um, uh, they they saw it and took us. They said, "We know what you want," and they took us on a journey up into the Carpathian Mountains, um, seven thousand feet on top of the Buchege plateau. <laughs> And, uh, said, you know, check this out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we were blown away. And it was, it was way more dynamic than I could have ever asked for. Uh, but it was also very challenging to get to. And, uh, and it, we knew instantly that if we were going to take that on, it was going to be kind of a rough and tumble elements shoot. Big so you, big
0: crew or how, what how many uh, the crew about over? 100 people. Okay. Yeah.
3: But but you know, uh, uh cast and crew everybody up at same, uh, in one lodge up on top of the mountain for yeah. 6 weeks. So, you know, you lose your mind a little bit as you probably is should. Is
0: altitude sickness at all up there? Or?
3: At 7000 feet, I don't I don't Not think it kicks in until around 10 or 11, okay. but uh but uh but the oxygen's definitely thinner. Yeah. You can definitely feel it when you're scaling hills and the environment was uh, you know, there were inclines everywhere all the time. There's almost no flat ground anywhere we were at. So you're constantly scaling and, um, the actors would, uh, uh, Rafe was pretty adamant as the lead actor. They would train, um, most days before the shoot, they would just go out get ready. just to get ready to feel, you know, to be prepared yeah. for, for what they were going to face, but also I think to get in touch with it to some degree. So, uh, they worked really, really hard.
0: There's. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, with with all horror movies, I think Mm -hmm. I'm probably more enamored with the setup than the payoff. I mean, I I just always enjoy the beginning like that. And What I'm always fascinated in is this idea that you're in control of how much I find out and when and how Mm -hmm. much tension you're going to draw up and and derive out of any one situation. And I thought this movie was incredible in how long it makes you wait for the the really wild shit to start kicking in and then when right. it kicks in you're like this is way crazier than i thought yeah. it was going to be you know mm-hmm. uh, and and even some of the characters are just like it's just a bunch of guys running around the woods trying to scare us you know this right. is um in your mind like how do you how do you come across okay this is how much i'm going to release here this is how much we're going to release there and then mm-hmm. this is when i take my foot off the brake entirely like right. do you do you have versions of the script that Tell us more. Show us more. Earlier, did, mm-hmm. did like, what is that process like? Because I've always been curious about that for a horror director.
3: I think the I think the imprint from the book and a lot of what went down in the book and a lot of went down and a lot of what went down in Joe's first draft. I mean, it was kind of clear to me that this was a movie that I think somebody said. Um, I can't remember who said it, but there's a term of just uh, bug nuts. Yeah. It's just going to go bug nuts at a certain point. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'd done that before in my shorts in a sense, like I'd love the frenetic mayhem of doing that or just kind of crossing the line or, uh, to, to without caution, take it suddenly, yeah. you know, in, in, in one huge direction that c- can be polarizing to certain audiences in a sense, um, But uh, uh, I think that was kind of always in the DNA of it for me. So it became more about imposing restraint on the front end in a sense. Yeah. So that you could kind of condition to that. And the hope is that there's the feeling of a descending nightmare that, um, you know, starts to go deeper and deeper into the wormhole than you hoped or imagined it would have in some ways. And uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Because when you're in that, in the woods there, Mm -hmm. I think the amount of time that you spend Putting the characters through the 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 ringer, you're kind of like, you know, it could be any number of things could be after them because like, and it also does really feel like the the natural world around them is out to get them. There are all those trees that have like these short little sharp branches that are sticking out like arms, kind of all throughout the woods. And I I I was I thought you, you did such a good job of like showing the way the landscape was almost. A, beckoning them in, and then also and then keeping them contained once they got into the woods. Yeah. It's such an incredible location. Mm-hmm. Um, we often talk on on the pod about uh, sort of like the state of, of movie making, the state of mm-hmm. fil- of t- filmmaking and television making, and where people are finding these little spaces to express themselves. And it does seem like it's been a pretty exciting period for horror Absolutely. O- over the last mm-hmm. few years. Mm-hmm. Did you come to it as like a natural, like, I'm just, this is what the kind of movies I want to make? Or was it a situation where you found this was a, a genre in which I can experiment a lot mm-hmm. and not have to like necessarily be beholden to some of the other stuff. I mean, it seems like it's pretty hard to get. If you were just like, I want to make a movie about four guys taking a hike uh-huh. to remember a friend, that might be a little bit more difficult to get off the ground than if you were like, and then there's also this this horror element to it.
3: Right, right. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I stumbled into horror. I, I was always a horror fan, mm-hmm. but I'd been doing a lot of theater in in Atlanta for a long time. And so we were doing, um, like, Penter by day yeah. and uh, Naomi Wallace and Frederick Schiller in the theater, and then we would go throw blood on the walls at night and do genre <laughs> films. So it, for me, if it, it, the, the concept that there was a clear division between high art and low art got murky for me really quickly. Yeah. It's kind of all the same stuff when you get into the basics of it, sure. but, you know, and the basics of drama and what's compelling to watch and what how to keep the ball up in the air for a period of time, you know, what makes you um, stay with something to the end, and. Uh, and 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 I think it was, you know, in that context that we first made a horror film called The Signal, um, that came out in two thousand eight. And uh and ever since then that's been a lot of where my opportunities have been and what's just interest me. So um I think the genre's had various moments over the period of time that I've been working. That seems to be an incredibly like inventive moment in horror right mm-hmm. now. Like people are interested in all kinds of different genre. And I think they're also very open to genre that is, I think there is a a better kind of public read on genre that is a reflection of internal conflict. You know, basically the, 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 uh, how symbolic the genre can be in a sense, which is super fun for me because it should be a psychological reflection of your own demons in a sense and, or it can be, I should say. And so, um, that's always kind of interested me and, um, ritual uh didn't come to me as a proposition to go do a you know horror in the woods movie it kind of came to me as this train that was already moving that already dealt with all of these different things and it was something that i felt like i understood and and it made sense you know in in the way the other stuff i'd done made sense so you know i just jumped on it but it's 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 probably hard for me to sort of see or keep in mind what the trends are yeah, sure. in a sense, you know, you, you, you kind of zero in, or at least I do on what makes sense to me and follow it to the end. And if it, if it has a place in that, great. Yeah. You know,
0: I know I know. guess because we, we have like that way of, I mean, it's easy to read deadline and like blogs and stuff and just be like, oh, obviously, you know, if you want to make a Hollywood movie now, you have to basically be working in one of these st- umbrellas of, of a like a shared universe or, or oh sure yeah have yeah. something like that. Whereas it seems like if you're working kind of under the radar in horror, you can do all sorts of stuff with original characters that maybe you would have to retcon to be part of something bigger. But, you know, it's always interesting to hear from people who are actually doing it because I'm not sure if that's a superficial reading on it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that you see, so you, you were maybe going to do Friday the 13th, right?
3: I was on Friday the 13th for about a year and a half
0: yeah. for Paramount. Was yeah. that an interesting... Can you talk much about that experience? Yeah, sure.
3: I mean, it was awesome. I got to work with some really great writers. I mean, the when I came on board, um, Ian, uh, Richard Nang and Ian Goldberg uh, had a draft. And okay. at that time, the challenge was to see if Friday the 13th could be a found footage movie, which I was pretty apprehensive about. Okay. But uh, but it was worth exploring. And Was it set uh, in the 80s still, or was it
0: going to be a uh, contemporary I thing? Think
3: that, I think that... I think that was uh, a take that came, yeah, I, th- I can't remember if it was our draft or if they already had a take on it that was set in the 80s. I think we may have steered it back to okay. that at the time. And um, and 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 that period was short-lived. We were kind of exploring that. There wasn't a ton of traction. And then the door opened up to do a, uh, a, a kind of a classic, you know, like reboot mm-hmm. that, that wouldn't be constrained by found footage, and there had been a lot of discoveries in in their draft and in our development process that we thought would translate to a proper reboot. So, um, Nick Antosca came on, and uh, and we did, oh, a, yeah, did kind of a Gen kind Zero, of a, yeah. kind of a dream draft yeah. of just okay. So there's no found footage mandate. You guys can have fun. It's 1989. It's the last day of summer. If if you could make the ultimate Friday the Thirteenth movie, what would that be? And uh, uh, and uh, and we were really really proud of it. And uh, ultimately, it didn't become a movie. And uh, there were some lessons for me in that experience, you know, just as a filmmaker about where I'm going to put my time and stuff. But, uh, but there was there were a lot of great people that were a part of it that I think fought really hard to get it made. But
0: you know, we yeah. all I like. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because I think that, um, again, you know, you just if you just experienced all this stuff through reading about it. You don't. Mm-hmm. I think you you come away with it and you're like, oh, that must have been a bad experience for the guy if he if it didn't wind up happening. But to hear you talk about it, it sounds like you learned a lot. It sounds like you met some cool people and that there it was like a worthwhile experience even if you didn't wind up directing a Friday the 13th movie.
3: Yeah, you get to collaborate with a lot of great people and you learn a lot, definitely. But, um, but also life is short. Sure. And it'd yeah. be better to be shooting something at the yeah. end of the day. And when you look up and you go, okay, I've been spinning my wheels on something for a year and a half. I mean, part of that, I think, comes with the job. Yeah. But uh, one of the things I've been learning is that part of the job is navigating that in a way that you end up on set. So that's as much a strategy as anything else.
0: Have you been, um, mm-hmm. is there anybody else who's working either within the sort of loose genre idea of horror or outside of it recently that you've been particularly inspired by? I think, you know, I was just curious whether or not you feel like you, you're watching stuff and being challenged by it any. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean,
3: I mean it, a lot of it's probably been well spoken of and you know certainly uh would not be uncommon to say that you know what david robert mitchell did with it follows i thought it was incredible i mean that was like one of the best horror movies i've seen in 20 years you know that comes to mind instantly um obviously get out was just incredible i mean that the concept of a social thriller i mean i feel like i think anytime you can take um you know any kind of contemporary anxiety and uh use that as the starting point for a horror film or use, you know, the genre mechanics of horror to explore modern anxieties. Mm-hmm. I think it's really exciting. Not just because you can kind of make a comment on that stuff, but also because people are uneasy yeah. about the modern state of being. And so uh, you're, you're mining that for scare beats at the same time. You're mining that to sort of, you know, get to those dark dimensions that horror films allow you to go to.
0: I wouldn't want you to mm-hmm. tip your hand about about future scripts? Is there an anxiety that you're seeing out there that you think would be ripe for that kind of treatment?
3: Uh, a lot of what I'm interested in tends to be technologically yeah. provoked. You yeah. Know? Um, it's a good time for that.
1: <laughs> it is, right? I mean,
3: you know, we made this movie back in 07, uh, The Signal. It yeah. was all about media fragmentation and how if you turn the dial up on media a little bit louder everybody would just lose their minds and become increasingly polarized. And, and those ideas, of course, have only become more so the case in a sense. But um, yeah, I think, um, look, a lot of what social media is kind of doing to collective conversation and how that's contributing to polarization I sure. think is particularly frightening. Um, I think, um, I, I don't think we yet, although, Ex Machina was an incredible movie. I think we have only begun to explore the dimensions of artificial intelligence yeah. and what that's going to do, not just in in terms of creating robots that kill us, but also <laughs> finding, finding uh, uh, systems that are better equipped to kind of manage our needs than human interaction, yeah. in a sense. And there's some frightening ideas about isolation ahead and, and, and movies are going to be a territory that we can explore some of this stuff and, and vent it. And yeah, it uh, have to be I think Skynet. it's <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: Um, what are you working on next?
3: Uh, nothing specific that I can really talk about, okay. but yeah, um, some TV and some movies and stuff, but, uh, everything, it's all kind of horror. It's okay. all, you know, some of it flirts with, uh, other subgenres and stuff, but, um, yeah to some degree a natural extension of some of this stuff
0: okay well everybody should check out The Ritual it's out mm-hmm. on Netflix it'll be out tomorrow thank you so much to David Bruckner for coming by man appreciate I it really recommend the movie thanks I don't, thank you great Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Showtime's hit series Homeland. The show with its finger on the pulse returns for a new season, abuses of power, civil unrest, agents and double agents isolated from the White House and the CIA. Carrie Matheson finds herself with few resources and many disbelievers as she tries to prove that not all conspiracies are theories. Homeland returns with new episodes Sundays at 9 p.m. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial.